1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guests today are Owen Hatherley and Kojo Karam. We talked about Owen's essay, A Study in the Politics and Aesthetics of English Misery. In the essay, Owen reflects on the generational divides that have emerged over the course of the last two UK general elections by charting the musical evolution of the Smiths. Comparing Morrissey's political trajectory to those of many voters throughout the north of England, Owen investigates the roots of the north's departure from anti-Thatcherite collectivism to nationalist reaction. You can find the essay in Futures of Socialism, the Pandemic and the Post-Corbyn Era, edited by Grace Blakely. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is A Kick in the Belly by Stella Dadsey. In the book, Dadsey tells the story of how enslaved women struggled for freedom in the West Indies. Bernadine Evaristo calls the book shocking, enlightening, fascinating and challenging. A Kick in the Belly reframes the overwhelmingly male perspective on the transatlantic slave trade through female experiences and acts of resistance. It is an essential corrective to the presentation of black women who lived through this history as passive victims. This hugely important new work is out now from Verso Books and part of their October Book Club Reading, a carefully curated selection of essential and brilliant books. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. And now to today's interview. Owen Hatherley is the author of several books on political aesthetics and the culture editor of Tribune magazine. His new book is Red Metropolis, Socialism and the Government of London. Kojo Karam teaches at Birkbeck School of Law, part of the University of London. He writes on law, race and empire, and his writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Nation and Descent magazine, amongst other publications.
0: The Smiths were very much before my time, so I never had the kind of you know obsessive fandom that you have when you're actually following a group that are, that are happening in real time, like certain other 90s groups, who I won't name. But it was a kind of interesting contradiction between discovering the Smiths finding it all very exciting and squaring that with Morrissey's solo career in the mid-1990s which was in what I think even some of the more fanatical Morrissey fans would admit was a bit of trough you know I challenge anyone to listen to Southpaw grammar or maladjusted all the way through or to claim that Dagenham Dave is a great classic so not even as good as Dagenham Dave by the Stranglers so they were kind of a sort of discovery but a discovery in the kind of way that I suppose lots of people sort of discover music nowadays was something that was purely in the past. And because it was purely in the past, I suppose I was able to take a degree of distance from it that I wouldn't from some of the certain other bands that were happening around the same time. Like, for instance, when they get slagged off, I don't have the same kind of like leave Britney alone response that I might have <laughs> when when the Manic Street Preachers or Pulper are, are kind of arraigned for their crimes. And crimes they certainly are in many cases but I have much more of a dog in that particular race. What about you, Kojo?
2: I mean, I think similar to Owen, you know, the Smiths were far before my time. I was born in 1986, so, you know, they're pretty much broken up at that point. So my kind of discovery of them was really through other people's references and other bands and other musicians that i was listening to you know in the kind of late 90s early 2000 era and their reverence of of the smith's back catalogue you know i'm really growing up in the northwest of england you know in the kind of post-brit-pop dirge of of music that's emerging at that time and um really kind of finding a, a musical attachment to to a lot of the stuff that's coming over from from the US, you know, thinking about hip hop, thinking about, you know, artists like Nas, artists like Scarface, and really appreciating the kind of lyricism of music at that particular moment and, and then, you know, when it, that starts to gravitate towards the UK and people like Roots Maneuver, you know, that, that that's what's that's really anchoring me. But in parallel with that is also the kind of post punk re-emergence of, you know, strokes, white stripes, libertines, that it's there Reference to the Smiths, plus the already laid interest in kind of lyricism and, and the poeticism, which, you know, Smiths are one of the, the bands where, you know, the, the, the words seem to over, override the music in terms of importance. And I think that that kind of connection made, made yeah, the Smiths a real interest for me for those few years, you know, plus the fact that around that time I'm a, I'm a you know, a, a, a grumpy teenager walking through the rain sodden streets of the Northwest of England, which is obviously perfect. Smiths listen to music.
1: During that time when, when both of you first encountered the Smiths, w- were you aware of the in particular the accusations of racism against against Morrissey? Because thinking about that period of the early two thousands, or you know, around the time of the when the, the You Are the Quarry album came out, Morrissey was very favourably treated by the media during that time. And, and it, it seemed as if the prior criticism, which there'd been in, in, in the NME, which led to you know the famous court case, there was a, almost a desire to see Morrissey as this dignified and uncomplicatedly positive figure around that time.
0: That's two different questions, really. And I think I'll answer the second first, because it's the more interesting one, which is about that particular moment. And I think the, the reason why The kind of return of you are the quarry and so on got got so much attention and and so much praise, even though the records were were dreadful. Like that album is awful, (laughs) (laughs) Um, like absolutely honking album. But it's it's sort of twofold. One of which is that it was such a poor time for personalities and music at that point. There was so few people with any charisma who could say anything interesting in interviews who had any sort of politics, even Morrissey's rather shady politics. You know that there was just no one even that looked good, and you know you have this kind of like ridiculous Quiffed old prick who lives in LA, kind of reemerging <laughs> with a wonderful sleeve. Like one thing got to credit him for in his late solo career is fantastic sleeves. Like the sleeve of you are the quarry is just wonderful. This is the one with the with the Tommy gun and the suit, with right? the Tommy gun and the red cut. and what's the other one where he's like carrying a baby in a kind of like burly muscular arm terrific i i find that one a little bit frightening myself (laughs) yeah but it's that's the thing it's 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 a strong image but the the music sounds like northern uproar or the blue tones or something but it was such a more abundant time in the early 2000s that he could come out and get loads and loads of praise for it so that's point one i think but the other reason is that by that point the music press didn't give a toss if you were racist and i think that's the really big point you know that the in the early '90s, and still to a degree in the kind of mid mid '90s when I started reading the music press, the stuff was taken pretty seriously. And by the early 2000s, it really, really wasn't. You know, the kind of intellectual and political level of the enemy was low. And by that point, it had absorbed Melody Maker, who, of course, you know, had kind of ended their decades-long run by doing a kind of like racist cover about Craig David. So, you know, it was really. A kind of ideal time for someone like that to kind of reemerge and get kind of like forgiven for everything but I suppose in terms of the first question is when I first encountered Morrissey whether I was aware of, of his of his views I mean when I was first aware of Morrissey it was a solo artist watching Top of the Pops as a kid like and watching like songs with funny names like you're the one for me fatty and thinking oh this is a bit different from Two Unlimited but not really having much of an opinion beyond that and so discovering the Smiths later on, was definitely after the kind of Madstock controversy and so on. So it was very much kind of known you were listening to something that, you know, had caused a certain amount of beef.
2: I think I definitely would agree with Owen's characterization of not only the kind of late 90s, early 2000s music press, but also just the the wider culture of, like, popular culture in in the UK at that particular time. Um, You know, I think following the kind of... Euro 96 Britpop moment. You know, the ubiquity of nationalism, of the Union Jack, of a kind of overt displays of national pride was one that was relatively all-consuming. And, um, you know, the racist actions that had been attributed to Morrissey in, you know, following the immediate post-Smith era and in the early 90s, all of a sudden became kind of re-presented as, yeah, a, a kind of proto Britpop moment, and I think that that really kind of masked a lot of the, the controversy that surrounded him, so it wasn't as visible by the time I was encountering him.
1: Yeah, and I suppose in that period, there's also although it's obviously a very different dynamic, Right, well, in some ways a different dynamic, you, you see Johnny Marr getting taken up by all the all the Britpop bands, but it's it's sort of Johnny Marr uh, his least interesting. It's, it's Johnny Marr as part of a sort of rock classicism, his black influence is not really talked about, and it seemed to me he he kind of had his head turned by that and was quite happy to see himself as part of this lineage, which which leads into stuff like uh, Oasis and notably, I mean, his his own music seems to be least interesting around around that time.
2: No, I'd agree as well. I think yeah, it, you know, it takes them out of that that era because I think one of the things which is interesting to me in terms of the actual guitar playing of. Johnny Marr is, and I think I've seen a few people talk about this online, or even in the in the in the conversation following Owen's piece. But about the way that it it does map onto kind of like West African high life jangly guitar music playing, and you know that influence, whether that's a conscious one or whether that's just a, a synergy or something that is yeah completely erased when he becomes like yeah this um this John the Baptist to to Noel Gallagher and <laughs> and, and to a particular yeah... Um, just um, gruff kind of lad rock Manchester tradition, which which really does turn the more avant-garde element of of the kind of post-industrial Manchester music scene into something that's, yeah, used to sell Chris and Frank Skinner and David Baddiel TV shows.
1: Coming on to the article you wrote, Erwin, so you, you begin by saying that after the December 2019 election, you found yourself listening to the Smiths' eponymous debut album why that record in particular rather than their later records or, or indeed Morrissey's solo work which you do talk about in the article but what what was it that drew you to to that record specifically
0: I don't really know and that article came out of a bit of a conundrum which was that I'd been commissioned by Tom Hazeldine to to write something for this this book that Versa were doing And I just thought, I have nothing to say. It was like, you know, something about like Englishness and nostalgia and and how that connects to the election. And just the very thought of doing that just filled me with just horror. I thought, I've said everything I want to say about this. Like, I don't have anything more to say. It's, It's all too bleak. And then I was like, remembered, like, what did I actually do when the people who'd stayed over that night left, you know, before I went to commiserate at my sister's house and get drunk? And that was... But on the album, and I think it's because it's the bleakest of their records. Like it's the most kind of morbid, you know. It's all sort of death and misery and loneliness, and and also all of that combined of sort of self-importance and nostalgia. I think you know, still ill is a sort of has the key to lots of this. It's sort of combination of like self-aggrandizement and misery. (laughs) <laughs> that that particular combo. So so I then thought, ah, well, maybe everything makes sense if you interpret it via Morrissey and kind of went from there. And in terms of the solo work, the only album that's discussed in that, because it's the only one that I think is very good, although there's a few singles that I like, but the only album from start to finish that I could listen to, skipping both Bengalian platforms and hairdresser on fire, is uh, Viva Hate. And Viva Hate fascinates me because... It's a moment where he sort of comes to realise what he is, I think. There's so many songs in there like Little Man What Now and Break Up the Family where you get a sense that he's sort of become a bit sick of himself and he's realised his own posture. And a lot of those songs are about kind of like there comes a point in which you have to grow up. Like Break Up the Family and, and Little Man What Now are totally about that. Like Little Man What Now is almost about what Morrissey is now. You know, it's sort of watching someone who used to idolize, like, turn up on a game show and and be awful and just kind of think, oh, my God, what did I see in you? And there's myth songs about that as well, like Rubber Ring. Like, he seemed very, very conscious that that this might happen to him. And then something seemed to happen in the late 80s. And he just went, yeah, fuck it. I'm going for it. I'm, I'm going to become a, a gigantic cliche of myself.
1: In terms of his political trajectory, you draw the parallel between his trajectory and that of that of the the post-war baby boomers. Could you could you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think some of the the more kind of literal comrades were kind of annoyed by this, as if I was kind of saying that this was the only way of explaining this that, that this particular generational cohort. And obviously, that's not true. But it's a little bit like doing a bit like this. It's you know, it was a kind of throwing something out there to see if it works, and I'm not sure if it all does but with all of those caveats, that he was, you know, that the election basically saw Labour get humiliated among a particular demographic, which was people who had voted Labour in the 80s and in the 90s in the north of England and in the industrial Midlands, particularly the West Midlands, post-industrial Midlands. And that's absolutely kind of Morrissey's background. I mean, actually, Morrissey is from, you know, inner city, Manchester, from Hume and Stratford, respectively. And he, obviously, all the places where Morrissey was brought up have stayed very much Labour. But I'm sure there's a lot of people who, like Morrissey, will have left Hume for, you know, a commuter town in Cheshire or for, you know, the kind of outer, outer greater Manchester seats which swung Tory in that election. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe like if you look at the Smiths, you can find some clues to to where those people were going to go and to why they were opposed to Thatcher, what they didn't like about the 1980s, and there, and kind of follow from there to why they then reacted so much against socialism as it was represented by Jeremy Corbyn, which, of course, was hugely popular among young voters and among black and minority ethnic voters, but was enormously unpopular among people that would have voted Labour in 1987. So his trajectory, you know, he... He grows up somewhere very, very poor. He becomes very, very successful in the 1980s in a in a new growth industry. And, you know, he makes loads of money and he moves somewhere nice, in his case, Los Angeles rather than Wilmslow. And he then pontificates about what's happened to the place where he's from. And one of the things that's really striking, if you, I didn't go into that much detail on it, I just kind of quoted a few little things, but Hugh and Ben go into a lot more detail on their bad gays, podcast about about Morrissey and the stuff he comes out with is exactly the stuff that you would imagine or expect from a 65 year old bloke who used to live in an inner city area in Britain who's moved out to the suburbs and doesn't go back there anymore all of the kind of like if you go to London you won't hear the British accent spoken type stuff (laughs) like ludicrous nonsense the British accent so his comments about Sadiq Khan, about Muslims and about Chinese people, a real like 65-year-old retired Ford worker from Thurrock type stuff. So you know, even, even despite how specific Morrissey's trajectory is and how particular it is in terms of his sexuality and his interests and, and the fact that obviously he's phenomenally famous... It was so much like all of those old pricks. Like it was like listening to one of those people that we all had to knock that we all knocked on the doors of in December and we told to fuck off. And I thought, wow, Morrissey is one of those men. He's one of them. That explains it all. He's become one of them. So that it was rather than seeing that as a kind of freak and an accidental occurrence, I thought it would be interesting to kind of try and trace that back to to the Smiths.
2: I mean, I thought what was really kind of provocative and challenging about that piece that Owen wrote as well was that, yes, Morrissey becomes representative of a particular type of voter which might have swung from a 1980s opposition to, to Margaret Thatcher towards uh, a support in 2019 of a manifestation of the Tory party that's so explicitly trying to take the Thatcherite project to its apotheosis. But I thought what was really interesting about the piece as well was that this wasn't, A change that I thought you were mapping out, but you were saying that that version of Morrissey, the one that we see now with the support of first, of Britain first and, and his, um, you know, his, his politics around Brexit and around Sadiq Khan, that that was always there in that earliest, yeah, instantiation of the Smiths, that that was always present. And what it really got me thinking about was, just a little bit before we were talking about that kind of shift that occurs around the Smiths from what the kind of more avant-garde oppositional element of working class musical cultural production was both prior and before the Smiths. And and to think about that kind of, that moment, that after-punk, pre-rave culture moment in terms of, you know, music that's coming out of Manchester, particularly. I thought, you know, in in that 1980s, you have music that is ostensibly oppositional to Thatcher, but in terms of its actual confrontation with the state and its actual confrontation with the law, that kind of post-punk moment is actually quite distinctive from punk music or rave music that comes after it or the branching off that you get when you think about new wave in in in, in terms of bass culture or you think about you know how it leads even into you know the, the kind of grime music hip-hop culture that was emerging in the uk at the time that all of those you know as, as, as a as, as a mm-hmm. academic who exists in the law school had a confrontational relationship with the law had a confrontational relationship with the state had legislation passed against them in a way that the Smiths in that kind of post punk moment never did. And so I wonder if there was always some, some acquiescence to the state back in the 1980s, despite the language and the words of, of opposition.
1: Would part of that be the nostalgic anti-modernist tendencies of the the Smiths, that sort of reimagining of of past trauma that Owen wrote about? Is there a sense in which Morrissey wants this restoration of a world that never could be, and he doesn't really believe it's possible, and it it doesn't really have any kind of utopian element to it in the way that may exist in,
2: in say, rave culture, for instance?
0: No, it's all just, it wasn't like the old days anymore.
2: And not only that kind of, yeah, nostalgia, particularly to a kind of 1950s, you know, it's, it's, it's Sheila Delaney, it's, you know, Keith Waterhouse, it's, it's, it's 1950s northern kind of snapshot culture. It's all in black and white. Literally, there's no color, literally, in terms of the imagery when you think about the Smiths, the, the visuals associated with that. So it's not only kind of nostalgic and, and, and retrospective, but I think it's also one that presents a particular version of Englishness. And it draws upon this kind of tradition of Englishness. It draws on that kind of literary canon that he tries to present in terms of Keats and in terms of, you know, the references that you see in in Morrissey's lyrics. It's that question of Englishness, I think, as well as as the answer to what he considers to be the vulgarness and the 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 greed, perhaps, and the the ostentatiousness of kind of Thatcherite Britain.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the, the the particular moment where history stops in Morrissey is the mid '60s, and I suppose give or take a few things. Obviously, he you know loves the New York Dolls, which comes later, but his particular. England stops in 1965 so it's really interesting to try to work out what it is that that happens after that upsets him so much and I think there's various things you know he obviously doesn't like psychedelia for instance but he also just doesn't like the sort of huge amount of influences that come in to British life at that point he doesn't like modernity he doesn't like people that aren't hang on I'm going to the libel territory there so We'll stop. <laughs> but there's, it's clear that there's certain groups of people that Morrissey doesn't like seeing around on the streets. And that's, I think, very, very latent from the start. And, you know, that, that that particular kitchen sink England is kind of obsessively preserved because it's just the moment, just before everything changes. If you read something like Revolution in the Head by Ian MacDonald, he has this very kind of apocalyptic kind of like, almost sort of Adorno-level belief that like something is completely shattered in public and intellectual life in the mid to late 60s that can never be put back together again. And that the great thing about the Beatles is they channel all of this. But that after that's happened, there's no room for anything other than despair. And Morrissey, it seems, would believe, believes that. And so he's, he's almost like trying to make a music that that is based on accepting that premise, that the second half of the 60s were a terrible, terrible disaster and blew the world apart. And some of that's just trivial stuff like taste in music, I guess. There was a, a... I've got a vague memory from when I read all the Johnny Rogan books of Johnny Marr saying that one of the reasons he left the Smiths was being faced with a choice between Sly and the Family Stone and Herman's Hermits, and being, like, obviously going for Sly and the Family Stone. Although, to be honest, lots of Marr's solo stuff isn't much better than solo stuff. solo stuff. His contributions, his bits of guitar that you can't hear all over the place but he certainly seems, personally, to have conducted himself considerably better than, than his former partner. But yeah, that so that's why I think you can trace it back to the Smiths, is that they're all based on this kind of idea of a particular time when something went wrong. I suppose in the Brexit imaginary, it all went wrong in the mid-70s, and I think Morrissey has it going wrong at a different time. But I think it's a similar impulse.
1: There's an, also a question around Morrissey's queerness, which... In terms of that longing for the, for the, the post-war period, is, is it almost as if Morrissey wants that repressive world? Because the only kind of queerness he's interested in is a sort of a hidden or a, or a veiled queerness, which depends upon a very conservative culture to exist to, to some extent. I mean, famously, he's always been very coy about his own sexuality. He's never been out. And you kind of get the sense that maybe Morrissey doesn't really like the idea of people being, being out.
0: It's not entirely true to say he's not out. I think if you read the autobiography, he's he's out, out, out. But he wasn't out at the time. During the Smiths, he was he was certainly not out. But he, of course, you know, his claim to be celibate as being part of, I think a lot of the, the kind of most interesting analysis at the time, and I think it, it, it plays fast and loose in this moment where it's tactless, is Simon Reynolds. And he kind of connects it with his analysis of things like C-86 and, you know, the kind of Glasgow indie, indie scene and so on. And the way that they are similarly asexual and kind of against this kind of like shoulder pads and muscles and big tits kind of like eighty sexuality, that very kind of, we are not going to play this game. And I mean, in a way, you know, Rave thing also refuses to play that game in its own probably more interesting way. But what that would miss, I suppose, is that Morrissey is also obsessed with it. So it's not just like, I'm not going to play the game of commodifying sexuality. It's like, I'm both not going to play the game and also try and play the game in my own way. And, you know, of all of the things to do with The Smiths, it's one of the things that's most enduringly interesting actually. I've got, aside from not feeling qualified to to talk about it, I also feel that it's not something I want to criticise. The nostalgia for repression I kind of went at from a different angle, which is about all the violence in The Smiths' songs. So songs mainly on me is murder, like headmaster ritual and russian ruffians and barbarism begins at home which are all about the people getting the shit beaten out of them and getting the shit beaten out of you is of course a major point of a provincial youth certainly was for me and you get a sense that the way that he kind of luxuriates in the violence of those songs there's an element of like is he criticizing the violence is he enjoying the violence it's kind of unclear and i think a lot of the he sort of moves, I think, gradually from being the victim of that violence, to being the perpetrator of it, as it were, I think. But that's the sort of, ten- that's what I tried to sort of imply, but I'm not sure if I'd go the whole way there. But there's a kind of thing of like, you know, there's so many of those songs are about if you work where in the mi- in the 60s, this is what would happen to you. You'd have the crap being out of you all the time. Like, There's about four songs about that. So there's the question of like, so why do you want to go back to that time? And I don't know what, exactly is going on there i don't think morrissey at the time really did and i quote a big chunk from an interview with simon reynolds where he around the time of eva hate where he is like of course i wouldn't want to go back there it was awful but that there's something within that that he wants to kind of bring out and i think maybe that kind of goes from being a reminder to people of kind of like this is what the recent past was like don't forget it to being a kind of like you don't know you're born. Yeah, to being you don't know you're born. This is what made me what I am. I think, yeah, that the, 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 what happens in those songs is a sort of shift between seeing the violence of that time as something bad to seeing it as character building and celebrating it as character building and kind of celebrating what a wonderful character he is as a result. I suppose it's, it's interesting in the case of a song like
1: Barbarism Begins at Home, because of course in spite of the lyrics that that song has a funk bassline and in the live shows at the time and the, and the and the TV performances at the end of the song Morrissey and, and and Johnny Marr would would sort of dance together whilst the rhythm section played and, and Johnny Marr would sometimes put down his 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 guitar and I mean, to me, I mean, I guess it goes back to that point you make about Morrissey's early solo, solo work where, where there's the possibility of some sort of transition towards something else. And it makes me think of a kind of an alternative trajectory of, of, of the Smiths where there's maybe a turn towards black pop music rather than the more sort of submerged way in which it exists within Johnny Marr's music and the outright hostility of, of, of Morrissey. But maybe that's just, you know, sort of a fantasy. I, I don't know.
0: I think that's there a little bit. I mean, they obviously got really, really narked about Rough Trade getting uh, Francois Kavorkian to remix this charming man. Mm, yeah, which is brilliant. Which is, yeah, fantastic. Fantastic remix, that. Wonderful. And and respectful as well. It's not like he just, you know, slaps a banging donk on it. You know, it's, it's it works beautifully with the, with the song.
1: What about you, Kojo? What do you, what do you think?
2: I can see where you're kind of indicating towards with... There is obviously an exploration of that kind of more black influenced uh, funk and rhythm section. You know, I think about the opening kind of drum intro to "The Queen Is Dead" the single. Um, I think about you know you can see that element towards it, but I think the, the the submerged relationship of black music is linked to the what you were referring to of that kind of yeah fantasization around repression and that 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 idea of returning to that moment, not just. In terms of trying to kind of like document it and trying to chronicle it, but also to try and re-experience it, I think that a lot of the opposition towards black music that you get from Morrissey, I think, is linked to an, an explicit politicism and an explicit political confrontation the you know the, the the famous quote of you know reggae being vile and being a representation of black nationalism. I think that you know that's that's not so much the musical element, element of it. It's 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 the it's the explicit oppositional element in terms of the songs that are being produced through that particular genre. I think there is of course a a political critique of Thatcherism that comes through some of the early Smiths records, but it's not an immediately confrontational one. It's that's that's still seen as somehow uncouth and somehow unglamorous. And I think that 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 is always going to be a point of separation between the music that emerges subsequently and the the music that the Morrissey and the Smiths tend to romanticise. I think it's one of the big points of contention that you will see between parts of the music press that continue to Lionized and romanticized the kind of golden age uh, of British indie music, and their um, their deep discomfort and, and deep opposition towards the 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 kind of commercial hegemony the music of uh, of 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 black artists holds at the moment. You know, thinking about you know your Santan days and your A. J. Tracy's and uh, and music of of particular London grime tradition, which itself does have a lot of the same kind of tropes of Englishness and imageries, you know, I think about, you know, the Kano record, this is England. I think about, you know, if you think about a Wiley or a a Dizzy Rascal tune, you can can imagine the video of them being, you know, in a cafe with a cup of tea, uh, stained, and and a lot of those same imageries that the the, the Smiths did so much to romanticise, I think it's present in that, but there's a certain confrontation within it that makes, yeah, the average Smiths fan, I'd say, relatively uncomfortable. And so I, I couldn't imagine the Smiths actually exploring that pathway.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's right on that locality. I, I, I'm a bit too old for it now, but in my 20s I spent quite a lot of time watching Channel U and thinking in a way how kind of indie all of this was. Like all of these incredibly cheaply made videos of people sitting in cafes and in and, and, and bow and, you know, talking in their accents. Maybe there was an alternative timeline in which Morrissey would have noticed that and embraced it, but kind of doubt it
1: he seems to have been almost completely unaware of the musical references of his own band weirdly so kojo's mentioned some of those influences hamilton Bahanan on how soon is now and and chic on, on the boy with the thorn in his side and one thing i was struck by was reading an interview with morrissey i, I think during the 1980s where i forget the exact words but he's extremely critical of of sade and almost in the next question, very positive about everything but the girl. Both <laughs> bands, you know, which, 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 which are, you know, hugely informed, obviously, by soul and, and jazz. But it's almost as if he he doesn't notice. And, you know, he notices with Sade because she's a, a black woman. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month, and if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.